0: Hello everybody and welcome to yet another episode of Sisters in Color the podcast where we bring you amazing women of color from around the globe women who are movers and shakers who have ideas and who come on this platform to share how they've made it in their career of choice how they are leading some of the challenges they've faced and just let us um and give us some insight into their world and answer the all-important question, who are they and what drives them? Today, we have the amazing and the brilliant Dr. Esther Oyango from Kenya. She is a fellow sister, uh, a member of APA. She has so many accolades, but let it not leave it up to me to introduce her. Hello, Esther. Welcome to Sisters in Colour. Hi, Christine. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you you so much for making time to be on this podcast. I know how incredibly busy you are. So really, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to sit and have this fireside chat with us.
1: Oh, yes. A pleasure to be here. I've followed your podcast and I just really want to highlight. I really love the amazing stories of women that you're bringing out. And it is my honor to be here today.
0: Thank you. Well, it is our honor to have you now. Our audience doesn't know you. So would you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Who is Dr. Esther? Oh,
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it depends on the day. Who am I? <laughs> but in essence, so um, professionally, I'm a researcher. I'm a research scientist and I'm an interdisciplinary researcher. So what that means is... Um, I cross disciplines in trying to answer my research questions, which is around understanding how environmental impacts like climate change, impact on human health, and how we can develop tools for policy and practice. So I have a long journey that led me to this point, um, but I love it. Um, I, I I love the complexity and the space that I'm in and the diverse people and stakeholders that I get to interact with. So that's me on majority of my daily life, working life. Um, outside of that, I'm a mother. My mother to an amazing six-year-old girl who is wise beyond her years, constantly challenges me to think outside the box and also just, you know, challenges me to do you know, in in, her, in my intellectual capacity. Um, and uh, apart from that, I'm a, I'm a fun lover, adventurer. I like adventures. I liked things that push me out of my comfort zone. I like thrill-seeking stuff, although since I became a mom, I've kind of reduced on that, but picking it up again. So that's in a nutshell, depending on, you know, what time of day it is.
0: Now, Issa, take us back to your childhood and your formative years. Did you always know what you wanted to be? I mean, some kids say, you know, they play dress up and they play dress up in fireman's costumes, doctor's costumes, nurse's costumes, but they weren't really costumes for researchers. So tell us, you know, a little bit about your formative years and what what it was like growing up in Kenya and what your childhood was like? Yeah, uh,
1: yeah, that that is an interesting question. Um, I have to say I'm not one of those kids who knew straight out the bat what I wanted to be. Oh, I, I did, but it was as far from science as it could get. So uh, growing up, I, I read a lot. I grew up in a family where uh, knowledge and intellectual curiosity was encouraged. So my dad was a big reader, big thinker. Um, We had a big family, have a big family. I had seven, six siblings, so seven of us. But I remember, and I was number five, so I came after all these boys and um, I, I remember, you know, discussions at the dinner table, just every topic under the sun. So we're all naturally curious people. And I started off by just reading everything I could get my hands on. I used to read a lot, ask questions. Um, I was in a household that that was encouraged, but it, it got to a point it got so bad with my reading that I was actually banned from bringing books home. I'm probably the only kid whose parents said, you can't bring any books home, but I would get so lost in a book that I'd forget everything around me. And um, just that love for words I thought I wanted to write. I'm an early age, and um, I went into high school uh, with the intent of going into journalism. Now, if you're African like me, you know, especially for our generation, journalism wasn't considered a career. It's not, you know, you were either doing medicine or law or <laughs> engineering. Yeah, <laughs> that was a career oh, or law. Um, That's it. Yes, yes, <laughs> pretty much. Um, so, yes, I, I, I knew, it. you know, my parents were entirely supportive of that uh, and kept steering me towards the sciences. And um, when I was in high school, there was t- uh, my biology teacher was really hands on with me. I mean, I still loved science. I just didn't really want to do it as a career then. But just the interaction with her is what pivoted me towards biology. Let's say I like it. I did really well in biology. I loved it. Um, I'd always liked knowing about the human body, how it functions, so I just um, thought then I would continue on with that and study that in in university. Um, So I went in university to do, uh, uh, I did my bachelor's and a master's in the US. Um, I did biomedical sciences, and then went on into a master's in in biological sciences, uh, specializing in microbiology and physiology. And then I went into a career doing that in industry, um, pharmaceutical microbiology. And I did that for about eight years and um, then realized it just wasn't fulfilling enough for me. It became, it's very routine. It's a, you know, controlled environment. It's drug manufacturing. So after a while, it was just quite routine. I like being challenged. I like more of a dynamic environment. So I made the decision to transition. It was Difficult. It was um, uh, really challenging. I mean, I knew I wanted to transition into something, but I wasn't sure what yet. And um, I also need, wanted to go back for my PhD at that point. And um, everyone I talked to kept steering me back into laboratory science, microbiology, and I was trying to get away from that. So I'd, a few life events happened and I um quit my job put in my resignation packed up my bags went back to kenya lived off my savings for about three four months trying to figure out life got in the interim um i was networking and reaching out to my networks and got uh started working on this coffee and unfunded project on climate change um in a rural part of western kenya um so i essentially moved from industry into this large-scale ecological research and from the U.S. into a rural remote part of Kenya that I wasn't even entirely familiar with. I'd grown up in Nairobi my entire life so it was you know a lot of shifts in a lot of ways but the I liked that because there was an interaction with people and I felt like that was what had been missing in the work that I was doing Um. Being in the lab, you can control for a lot of things, but then people, people are not predictable in that sense. And I love the the interacting with people. So when I finally put a proposal together to apply for my PhD, it was to look at both aspects, biophysical side of things and the social side of things. And and, and you know, since I'd worked in climate change, had a background in microbiology, climate and health was becoming a thing. So I decided to to go in that direction to combine both experiences and I applied and you know I'd like to say it was straight up they said wow amazing brilliant but no I was rejected quite a few times <laughs> and with good reason I mean I didn't have the background for it mm-hmm. I was a microbiologist up until that point I mean I had one person even ask me what makes you think you can do this you, you don't have the background for it a few people were kind and suggested to go back and do a master's in public health or something before then before attempting. And um I had up until then, I had a brother who was here and had resisted coming to Australia. I really had. And he took that opportunity to push it and say, you know, Australia, the lab is, you know, at, at that point, Australia was really leading in a lot of climate change research. It was coming out of this country. And the Griffith University was really promoting interdisciplinary approaches, which was where I was sitting. So with his incessant pushing. I put in a proposal and uh, one thing led to another. They gave me a full scholarship and I, here I am. And I'm still working in climate and health 10 years later. I like it. Um, you know, it's an interdisciplinary space. I get to look at biophysical side of things, the socioeconomic side. I get to look at how that's useful for policy. So I, I can say that i'm in a good space now and i probably now know what i want to do Mm -hmm. with my life wow yes
0: wow that's that's we'll get to that just back to a few things that you mentioned now you've segued um into how you've studied in uh and lived in different places. So obviously, you know, your your formative years and um, your sense of identity, a lot of it comes from your Kenyan heritage, but you've also lived in the US and now in Australia. Now contrast um, and educate us a bit on your move to the US when you did your undergrad. What was that like?
1: Oh, it, was, it, it actually wasn't the first time I'd left Kenya. So I, I initially left Kenya when I was 10, almost 11. Mm -hmm. So my father, his work took him to Europe, to Zurich. So we lived there for eight years. But in between, I went to high school in Kenya because my dad felt like it would help us with staying connected to our culture. So he shipped us back. At the time, it just felt like torture. Like, why? So (laughs) he shipped us back to boarding school there. So I did my high school in Kenya, but I'd really be in, in the country for the school year. And then holidays i would be back with my family so i can say from an early age there was that exposure outside of of my culture and and my heritage and i think that has shaped a lot of how i think about stuff i have a very broad way of looking at things it's quite easy for me to integrate with different groups just because of that background so when i moved to the us i mean um it's it's interesting i mean it was different from kenya and the europe in a lot of ways Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the the diversity of opportunities that was there, um, it was challenging in other ways. Um, there was you know so there was a a few more systemic barriers. I think because I was also older, I was probably experiencing this more than when I was in Europe as a teenager. So that all those things, it's basically you know they would be managed at a more higher level. Mm-hmm. So just just um, yeah, and and the education system is also something that I kind of had to find my way around. I ping ponged between Kenyan IB, US, and yeah. <laughs>
0: And that's something people who have studied in one country don't really appreciate, which is the different educational frameworks, you know, like you've just mentioned the International Baccalaureate. And, you know, I learned under Cambridge, I'm sure in Kenya, you had Cambridge as well, because we're all part of, you know, the empire. And... um. When you move overseas, that whole skills recognition and having to adjust to different uh, different educational frameworks, I think it's something that's completely underestimated in the kind of skills that you have to develop uh, to mm-hmm. learn that, which is why sometimes the whole skills assessment infuriates me because I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you have no idea. You have no idea. Yep. I, I I hear you. Yes. Yeah. Now you talk a lot about um now climate change is not something that I think a lot of people understand very well. I think there's a lot of information out there around climate change. I think people are seeing um some of the impact. But the way that it's reported, I don't think there's a good understanding on how it actually impacts. Now, you're studying um, an interest in an interesting space and you're looking at um, the intersectionality sectionality from a health perspective, from life outcomes perspective. Educate us a little bit about what what is your research telling you? like what what are some of those impacts that the ordinary man, um, living today needs to to be aware of when it comes to climate change. okay.
1: so um uh, climate change, basically, I just also want to make this distinction before I go in because I have people ask me if we say, you know, it's we're getting warmer. why why are we why is it colder this winter? Mm-hmm. So there's seasonal differences, of course. but the way the climate change is measured, it's measured in decades. So over a period of time, okay. you know. What are we seeing, and what we're witnessing is temperatures are getting warmer and warmer as we go. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got changes in rainfall patterns. You've got extended drought periods. You've got um, um, things like um, cyclones, other extreme weather. We're flooding. We're seeing more of those mm-hmm. that are more intense, and they're coming at in higher frequency. So even though the typically, you know, the 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 climate cycle has changed in the past. What is happening now is it's changing much, much faster than it used to. So what would take like, you know, um, millions of years to do, we're now accomplishing that in decades. So this art systems are struggling to keep up and to adapt.
0: Sorry, and- so can I interrupt you there? I just want to make yes. sure I heard you right. You said that what would normally take millions, is, uh, millions of years is now happening in decades. Okay, Yes. Yes. Right. So
1: the, yes, the temperature increased, literally, it's accelerating like that. And so, and this is because of a lot of the emissions that we're pushing into the atmosphere, that's the primary driver, and the primary mm-hmm. source of that is our activity. So I think it's something that, you know, in the past has been debated a lot, but now the, the scientific evidence is clear, it's there, it's happening. And even, even, you know, just, visibly you can see the impacts of that. Um, So, you know, for example, even in Australia here, just a couple of years ago, the extended drought that led into wildfires Mm -hmm. on end. The floodings we've had, you know, all these other types of extreme weather, the heat waves. Mm -hmm. So all of that is, you know, so some of it is unprecedented, hasn't been seen before. So what is happening? um, So it's, you know, all these changes impact on different aspects of the earth systems. And these people study these different aspects um where I sit at within health there's there's the more direct impacts on health which is basically you know mortality death and then there's there's other things like air pollution you've got heat waves with the impact on health you've got changes in patterns of disease you've got waterborne diseases you've got uh, mental health now as well Uh um so i have primarily focused on that change in diseases um, and and vectored diseases so vector diseases are transmitted by um, a, a type either an insect um, like a mosquito or something like that a fly snails. so there's an intermediary that transmits the disease as opposed mm-hmm. to direct infection. Yeah um, so the 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 thing with um, these changes in particularly temperature is a primary driver. A lot of these diseases operate within certain temperature boundaries. Yeah. Um, uh, so what when you get that change in temperature, you shift the boundaries within which the disease can transmit. Mm-hmm. So temperature will affect the life cycle of the vector itself. It will affect the, the pathogen, the virus, bacteria, whatever it is that the, the vector is carrying. And it's also affecting the movement, how they their behavior and how they spread. Mm -hmm. So, um, so for example, something like malaria, which I've looked at, which, um, typically you don't see, you see very little transmission under 21 degrees, zero under 16. And then on the upper end, it dies out at about 34. So if you in a place that's outside those limits, you're not Mm going to see much malaria, but what's happening is areas that were under that are now shifting uh-huh. And if you have the mosquito present and the pathogen is introduced, then you can get this disease spreading because now the conditions favor the spread of the disease. So when when you look at the models, you see that there's there's been expansion uh-huh. in the distribution of the disease. Yeah, um, and these are projected to expand even further and so and also increases in transmission then you get things like you get if the disease goes into into uh, communities that have haven't been exposed, exposed And outbreaks yeah epidemics things like that so and the models project that these these ranges are going to expand as we continue to see shifts in temperature
0: you know that makes sense to me because you know i'm just sitting there listening like i obviously did had no appreciation um that you know the the in terms of the upper end of the heat spectrum, the mosquito can't live in that. I didn't realize mm-hmm. it was because to me, um, I thought it could thrive in any heat. So I knew about you know the cold spectrum side of things uh, because yeah. I grew up in a in a very malaria-prone um, area in uh, in Zimbabwe. So we were all very much aware we had our mosquito nets and and all mm-hmm. of that, but it was predominantly quite a warm. Um, and, uh, it, it, it warm and dry, but there was a lot of still waters around. So a lot of, um, uh. you know, breeding grounds for mosquitoes, but I didn't yeah. realize that if it got super hot, it, you know, the mosquito dies itself. So that, well, that's, it's, yeah,
1: it, it's, that the thing is to die out before it has a chance to transmit the pathogen. Okay. So it, 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 it extends, the temperatures are suitable then the pathogen finishes its life cycle faster, the mosquito can transmit it. This mosquito life cycle is also a bit extended. Mm-hmm. But when you get higher and higher, you get a shorter lifespan of the mosquito.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, there an extension in how long it takes for the pathogen to develop. So if the mosquito dies before that pathogen develops, mm-hmm. then it can't transmit disease. So it's a very, it's quite a complex cycle. There's layers of it. You have to understand yeah. what's going on inside the mosquito. You have to understand what's going on with the mosquito. Mm-hmm. You have to understand what's going on with human beings. Mm-hmm. And then once that that infection gets in, into humans, you also have to. That, that's also you know you have to understand what's going on in there inside the human being. So, so to connect all the dots.
0: Yeah. so from a, a researcher's perspective right there is the impact on climate but the other aspect that you study is health obviously right so yeah. the, the climate is changing obviously um that is having an impact on on health in that disease is probably becoming more prevalent um, and more widespread in areas that previously may not have experienced those types mm-hmm. of uh, diseases before and we've seen you know um the the pandemic we've seen what happened with with um, with COVID and what's happened with um, and how prepared we are yes. <laughs> as, as as a world in terms of that. In terms of if we bring it back to the ordinary person and how our behaviors, I think one of the things that I'm sensing and it'll be interesting to hear from you as a person who is an expert in this field. How much personal responsibility are we taking for our impact on that? Because I always believe in that, look, there's big world things that are happening, right? And for me, um, my example is, you know, there's a lot of inequities that I see in women leadership, right? So what can I do? I can have a podcast and talk to women about what it is that they do. That's the little bit that Mm. I can practically do um, with me here in the space that I occupy you know there's a whole lot of other things that I do that are linked to that but that's just an example so if we take that example and we look at the big things that you're dealing with you know the big um evolving um different ecosystems and all of the things that you're looking at at that macro level from a climate change perspective what can we do better that can assist us with improving our health comes outcomes sorry and it slowing down or at least if not slowing down but at least contributing to mitigating some of the impact mm-hmm. of climate change
1: yeah i think first it starts with the awareness i mean we're all contributing in our little ways whether it's by emissions whether it's you know just environmental pollution or or uh, individually within our household within our communities. so first it's that awareness and understanding and then um you know and then from that then you can look at okay what what can I do to to what what little bit can I do for me as an individual um so there's there's um apps out there that track your emissions that you know the emissions track, tracker. And they can tell you how much you're contributing to global greenhouse gas emissions based on your travel patterns, your flight patterns, your your appliances in the house and things like that. So that if you, I mean, if you plug into something like that then it gives you an idea of what your personal carbon footprint is and what you're contributing. But also you can look at ways in which you can, you can mitigate that and do your bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, not yeah, if you don't have to travel somewhere Know, do an online meeting. I mean, COVID was a good example of when we stopped flying everywhere. You know, yeah. the air cleared up in a lot of places and <laughs> things became green again. So there's there's a bit I know it's hard because yes, we wanna go places. But sometimes it's about thinking that um there's there's carbon offsets where you can offset the the amount of emissions you put back in. Um and but also those are debated problems are debated um you can choose to like I personally my electricity company sources its energy from solar Mm -hmm. so it's green energy and the excess energy that they 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 do harvest is fed back into the grid so that's my one way um of since I can't have solar that's my one way you know my small contribution um I don't do plastics in my house so those small things um I try to recycle whenever I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know the, so so there's this little things that you can do within your household just to look at ways with which you can mitigate. And also, part of it is you know getting out there and getting the information you need. There's a lot of information now about um, climate change, about sustainability, mm-hmm. about what you can do. Um, there's information from your your government local council so it's out there if people really want to know and and um, have awareness of how they can uh, contribute
0: yeah yeah so i guess one of the things that i'm fascinated about is um finding out how we're doing as women in these different spaces. So as a researcher, as a woman who's you know at the top of her game in this field, I don't know many, many I don't know many women of color who are doing what you do. In fact, I just know you. So how many of us are there? You know,
1: and so I'm gonna speak from Australia because I'm here now and working here now. And yeah. I have to say, Christine, in my I've, I've now been in climate change research for 10 years plus, starting from when I started doing, you know, when I left the US, probably like 11, 12 years. Uh-huh. And uh, my time in Australia, 10 years of those, has been here. And I can honestly say that in all of the conferences I've been to, all of the research forums, everything, I've probably come across I don't know, three, four women of color. Uh-huh. So we're not, <laughs> yes we're not that many but sometimes you're in a room full of people mm-hmm. over 300 people and you look around and you're like oh okay that's just okay. me <laughs> so <laughs> there's not a lot of women of color out there but I'm i'm speaking from the context of being here in australia certainly if you went to somewhere like east africa you'd find more women um, the number of women in general in climate change research is growing, but it's still not enough. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, we need to have more women in research. We also need to have more women in, in the policy space. And oh, yeah. and not only that, we need to have more women in the negotiations. You know, when you go to the UNFCCC and when countries are making commitments and, and uh, there's two reasons for that. I mean, one, uh, climate change is going to impact on women differently. Women are more vulnerable. Well, a, a lot of it boils down to the the institutions around the cultural practices, the, the socioeconomics, everything. So you have your impacts, then when you cascade down into communities, into individual households, you'll find that generally it's women who are more impacted because of their status <laughs> um, because they may not have agency to make decisions within the household,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: the awareness, you know, the 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 differences in um, education levels or things like that. But at the same time, when interventions have been made in groups like that, you find that the women are the more engaged ones, the engaged groups. They want to come out, they want to know information. Mm-hmm. So there's the you know, the 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 needs to be a space where we can really empower these women as agents of change. And typically when you go do your training it's shown, when you give women that information and how to cope, they're the ones driving and leading change. Mm-hmm. So the opportunities are there um, to to actually just push women into spaces where you know they they're making climate policies, they're doing research that looks at those intersectional vulnerabilities and those differential impacts and understands that you need to consider them when you're developing policies as well.
0: Yeah. Now, one of your new passion projects is getting more young women engaged and interested in STEM. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So um, uh, my colleague and friend, Dr. Maggie Lord, and I started an initiative called Mchaori. Now, Mshaori sure has been a long time uh, in the making. It's something that we have discussed for a while, but it came out of a need. Some the aim of Nomchawry is to to increase um, the uptake of uh, women of color from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds into STEM careers. And this came out of uh, you know just being in that space and not seeing enough women of color but also just realizing that the you know the for us for for Maggie and myself being in the position that we are um in our career spaces and with a little bit of influence now then it's giving back and how can we elevate more women to come you know into the sciences but also to come into key critical research fields that are going to be for the future so you know you've got technology you've got scientific advancements going on You've got things like AI, machine learning, all of that. So we don't want these women to miss the boat, mm-hmm. and and Shaori, um looks at doing starting this from like the high school level, where a lot of kids are now trying to figure out what they want, uh, what they're interested in, and going into high schools and talking to kids about their interests around STEM and. Why, why they may not like STEM or what opportunities they foresee, and in that process, understanding if there are any barriers, what their needs are, and then we pair them with a mentor who um, hopefully guides them through through a journey where they they go on into university and take up STEM subjects. Um, I think for me personally, my my personal drive from Shaori, um as I said before, I I grew up. in in a space where learning was actively encouraged Mm -hmm. but I also grew up with parents who made no distinction between boys and girls yeah we were all one cohort and I think for my mom she just had a lot of kids we did everything there was no boy
0: girl stuff you're you're a kid in my house you have choice yeah I know I know what that's like because I remember one time thinking oh, there's a planet that my brother gets a better education than me. Exactly. I'm, that one, I'd like to see that planet. Yep. But when you grow up, that's when you realize that that's actually a position of privilege. And exactly. I remember, I read um, Terry Trent's story in a book, I don't know if you've read a book called Half the Sky. And it's mm-hmm. it's based on a Chinese proverb of women hold half the sky. And it's a, it's a compilation book of women's stories. And the common thread that runs through it is maternal, um, you know, the, the lack of maternal care and how women are dying in maternal sure. care and stories of abuse and, um, you know, the marginalisation of the girl child. So it's interesting for you in growing up in a Kenyan home where, you know, you were really liberated and you really were really yeah. feminist. When yeah. did you learn that that was not normal? When did you learn that you were a bit of an exception in that environment? I, when did I you think get that was, education?
1: <laughs> yeah, it was more later, particularly when I went to uh and, university which was really my first step outside the home and it was then I realized oh there's certain roles for boys mm-hmm. or girls, particularly in the African context. Oh, they don't cook. It's like my my brothers are, you know, were cooking long before I was cooking. So for mm-hmm. me it was, oh is that and I have to admit it has caused challenges for me sometimes, particularly mm-hmm. in the African context. So then people think that there's no way you're just putting on a show for us. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, but I just grew up where there was no division with these things. Mm-hmm. But also with with the mom who was like, Yes, we are all working, but also your studies are not going to fail. All of you, all of you. So everyone was treated equally in that sense. So it was quite eye-opening later to realize that not all households experience that. And and having that you know, that privilege of having that exposure early on. And particularly, just exposure to a lot of knowledge, I think really allowed me later on to to cement what I wanted mm-hmm. and where I wanted to what I wanted to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And um I think for a lot of people, it, it, particularly um if we look at cult communities here, that exposure is really critical, especially if you go into high school. Uh, studies have shown the earlier you expose children to STEM and STEM concepts, the more likely they are to gain an interest in it later in life.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: even for me, even though I was wanted to be a writer, I was still, while I was doing my reading, all of that, I was still reading STEM stuff. So there was that exposure that was there from early on, which, you know, I just suckled back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was really my drive with Michelle Reed, recognizing the privilege that I've had and the exposure um, not just to education but also to diverse countries diverse cultures diverse contexts and bringing that in and seeing, okay how do i empower the next generation of, of you know called women to to succeed in stem fields
0: so what uh i guess being a woman who is acknowledging very much that you know you've had certain privileges that have allowed you and enabled you to occupy those spaces how do you see us as women working more collectively to break down some of those? Obviously, you've talked about Mashari as uh, a passion project that's really looking at the incubation stage of the idea and, you know, creating those uh, pipelines into STEM careers. But there are women that are in those fields. Right. And there are women who are not being drawn to the leadership levels um, or there are, in my view anyway, some systemic barriers that um, not enough of us are crossing over into those spaces. So in the research space that you occupy, firstly, I remember growing up, academia was was valued. Uh, you know, like in, in Africa, if you've got a PhD, you know, you're, you're a leader of a company. Like here, if you've got a PhD, you're a dime a dozen. Like, you know, there's there's quite a few of you um, that have them. I remember once I led a team at the department and half the team had PhDs and I didn't have a PhD. I just had a master's and everybody else on the team had PhDs. So I yeah. was winning. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, in Africa, that scenario doesn't you know, doesn't quite exist. So I guess where I'm going to with the question that I'm wanting to explore with you is what are some of those really kind of entrenched barriers at a corporate level? Because you're in a corporate environment and also, you know, quasi sort of research environment. What are some of those barriers? Is it that it's legacy in the sense that there's just not enough of us that are in that space? Is it that there's some structural inhibitors, Um that are prohibiting more women who may even be working in those spaces from crossing over? Is it cultural? Is it psychological? What do you think it is?
1: Are you talking about crossing over into the research space or...
0: Yeah, crossing over into the research space, but not just as a researcher, but actually leading, you know, a body of research, actually, you know, leading um, things that are going to be at cutting edge of changing the world. You just don't see a lot of women of color leading, um, you know, big research institutions or big research projects. So I guess that's what I'm asking. That leadership that leadership element, because I think the skills are there and they the worker bees are there. It's just how do they transverse and cross over into that leadership space? Yeah, I
1: think a lot of it does go down to you know there's structural and institutional barriers that have existed for a while, mm-hmm. and and overcoming those will take time, and and it it at for me, I th- think it comes down to two things. One, we have women who have transcended those barriers and are in positions where they have influence or they have leadership. And those women, for those women, there's, I feel like we have a certain responsibility as women to, to champion that type of change. You know, you get to a point where you have some degree of influence within the system, then you can be a champion. You can look at ways in which you mentor other women to come up, but also champion change within the organization to acknowledge those barriers sometimes they're not visible I mean you you could be in a group if if the status quo has been a certain way for a long time those barriers are not immediately visible to others they might think we all have a level playing field and that's it you know we're all here you know I did it why can't you as a woman do it and sometimes it's highlighting those in a way that's not confrontational, but it just brings people together into a conversation and acknowledging that. And I think the other aspect is that change doesn't happen in isolation, you know, with the women working in isolation. you've got to bring the men in as well mm-hmm. into that conversation
0: absolutely. And, and,
1: yes, and it's got to be a, a thing where you know you bring the men in and you collaborate to just affect institutional change. um in my time, in the research phase, I've seen a lot of change towards that. I mean, there's a lot more conversations happening around, uh, you know, gender, gender equity, inclusivity, you know, um, diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's frustrating because I feel like they're broad motherhood statements Mm -hmm. and, and they're, you know, nested in a strategic plan somewhere. But mm-hmm. I think the challenge is sometimes people don't quite know how to operationalize that. Okay, we yeah. we know this is this is what we're aspiring to, but how do we get there? Um, so uh, uh, you know, it's it does it's something that we'll you know we're we're making progress. There's still a lot of room to grow, mm-hmm. but it it really falls on us as women and the men collectively to work towards that.
0: Yeah, and I think for me there is no. Um, conversation around feminism without bringing the the men into the conversation uh that has always been a firm I've always had a firm belief in that now you said something earlier on which I wanted to leave right until the end of our discussion which is you know exactly who you are and what you want to do now so I want to know what that is <laughs> the million dollar question. I want to know well, that because there are very few people who've said it quite as boldly as that. I was like, okay, I'm going to hold on to that right until the end. I, want- yeah,
1: well, I, I mean, I'm in a space where I like what I'm doing. I don't, I'm not seeing it changing in the near future. So I'm in a space where I get to, I, I, I think I talked to, I told someone today, I'm in my happiest place, finally. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing interdisciplinary research. I'm collaborating in different disciplines. I'm looking at um, how different aspects can, in the context of changing climate, can impact on human health, and I'm looking at how we develop tools for policy. So I'm really centered in in just accepting that I'm an interdisciplinary researcher. I like I like looking at uh, uh, you know issues from a whole systems perspective. Uh, I I am focused on solutions for for change, for effective, you know, management of these changes, effective adaptation. So um yeah, that's where I sit. And I can see myself doing that for for a while. So yes. I am and- an interdisciplinary research scientist. Um what's that I did? Yeah.
0: I love that. And that's that. I love that on the <laughs> on the cv I love that yes (laughs) you know and one of the things that I love about listening to your story is the richness of it in terms of um the experience and the depth of it in terms of you know the subject matter and really uh when you see women occupying these spaces, the level of detail and the attention that you pay into, you're not just looking at things from a macro perspective, but you're looking at the micro as well. Mm-hmm. And so bringing an understanding to these complex systems that people, everyday Joe, average, you know, isn't really sitting there contemplating, but you yeah. narrowed it right down to the personal responsibility that we all need to take for the, the world, the impact that we have on the world, the footprint that we are creating every single time we generate waste, every single time you know, we take unnecessary trips when we could have just had, you know, a phone call and it would have achieved mm. exactly the same um the same thing. I think humanity has a lot to answer for in how we've cared for the only place that we really have to call home, it's not like you know we can just jet off onto another planet. There's no
1: planet B. There's no planet B.
0: You do realize there's no plan B. Like if we just yeah. this, this is it. Like this is it. You know. Yeah. So it's been an absolute pleasure to drive to dive into your world and get an understanding of uh, the space that you occupy, the things that drive you, and really I love that full circle moment of talking to someone who's at peace with um, who they are as a person, where they are as a person and saying, you know what, unapologetically, this is me. This is what I'm passionate about. And um, this is what I can see myself doing. I think that is always my prayer and my intention for every single person that I come across on this platform is really finding them at their, you know, at their best, and you can only be at your best when you have that rest in understanding who you are, and the space that you hold, and the power that you bring. So, Esther, thank you yeah. so much for thank sharing you. that. Yeah, and no,
1: thank you, Christine. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yes,
0: I learned a lot. I learned a lot about climate change. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm good. A, I am. I'm happy to spread the knowledge anytime. So,
0: well, I'm gonna go do a bit more research because I'm like, geez, you're ignorant. You need to yeah,
1: know. I mean, log on and find what your carbon footprint is and you know, yeah. start making small changes
0: start making small changes well yeah. the small change that i started making that i took responsibility for was what i consume. i gave up meat because mm-hmm. i know how much it takes to produce yeah. it i know a whole lot of stuff around that so yeah. i'm now plant-based and I oh good. try yes. as far as possible to eat local plant-based. There's so many restaurants now who, wow. if they're on that veganism um, tail, they're also on the sustainability and also mm. I work in the diversity, equity and inclusion space. And that intersects with ESG. So there's a lot of overlaps and intersectionalities with the sustainability aspect, because if you are continuously have this factory mentality, which is what Mm. has actually led us to, you know, partially um, today and stop focusing uh, and, you know, not stop to focus on the individual humanity that is in all of us. You know, yeah. you miss the essence of the things that can lead you to creativity, that can lead you to growth, that can lead you to entering new markets. All of the, and that's the space, that's the juice that I love to 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 research on and and find out. So, you know, I might pick your brains if I ever you know decide to be on the PhD path. Oh, good. That. Yes. As to how to frame that that research question, because it's kind of fun. Yeah in my head and now i've put it out there on my podcast
1: okay good i'll, I'll be following up with you yes so
0: now i have to i have to do it but it is yeah. it is so it has been so fascinating um talking to you and i've really really enjoyed it and we've gone over time so i definitely know that we um so thank you everybody um for listening before we go is if people want to follow you and follow your work where can they find you
1: um, I'm primarily active on LinkedIn uh, under my name's Esther Onyango. Um, I tweet once in a while, mm-hmm. um, Chien Onyango. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but those are the two sites where I'm really active. And if you're really wanting to hear more about Mishawri, we now have a website, www.mishawri.com.au. So we have information there about the program and um, our vision, and we'll Post any updates that we have on there.
0: Yeah, excellent. Thank you so much. And Mushari is an amazing initiative that was launched a few weeks ago at the University of Queensland with the support of um, key organisations in the African community. But Mushari is not just about the African community. It is about the multicultural community in its totality. It is about bringing marginalized, uh, bringing uh, experiences to marginalized communities where there are existing barriers, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, those barriers do exist. And Mm -hmm. these two amazing ladies are looking at how do they break those down through conversations in high school? How do they inspire through workshops, through trainings? So if you're a business out there or if you have contacts and connections out there and you know of ways that you can help, ways that you can support. Head to their websites, um, have a look at what Mashari is doing, dive in and let's build the next generation of leaders because without um, more uh, young people of colour engaging in STEM, you... Get the same old ideas, you get the same old visions. So, you want to have diversity in all its glory uh, in every single sphere. So, have you know, take the time to invest, have a look, and have a see at what these amazing women um, who are in this space that very few women of color occupy are actually doing. So, I'd like to thank you, Esther, for your time, and I'd like to say goodbye. All right.
1: Thank you, Christine. For Harry so much right goodbye